Did you know that Nine Marks books have been translated into a variety of languages? To find out what Nine Marks translations are available, visit www.ninemarks.org forward slash Nine Marks Translations. Hi, I'm Ryan Townsend, Executive Director of Nine Marks. Our vision is simple, churches that reflect the character of God. In light of that, Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. To that end, we pray that this Nine Marks audio message will benefit both you and your local church. Listen, learn, and join the conversation. This is Mark Dever. It's August 2nd, 2011. I'm here in my study in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined today by two guests, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. Hi, Mark. Hello. Good to have you guys. Kevin has been the senior pastor at University Reformed Church at East Lansing, Michigan. Where's East Lansing? It is right in the middle. If you hold up your right hand, Michigan makes a nice little mitten. It's right there in the middle. All right. Uh, you've been the senior pastor there since 2004. Yes. University Reformed Church. Yep. <clears throat> Main responsibilities: preaching, leadership, administration. Yep. And now I do a fair amount of writing and some speaking outside the church, but those are the main responsibilities in the church. Kevin was born outside of Chicago in South Holland, Illinois, from third grade on. Grew up in Jenison, Michigan. It's outside of Grand Rapids. How old were you when you were baptized? Um, a couple weeks, perhaps. He uh, attended Hope College and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Did you go to church while you were at seminary? I did. Where? I went to uh, First Presbyterian Church in Ipswich, Massachusetts, OPC congregation. Did anything there help to shape your understanding of what the mission of the church is? Uh, it was it was a great church to be a part of with good mentoring and teaching and preaching. Uh, I don't remember that particular theme being uh, influential, but it was a great church. Prior to serving at URC, Kevin was the associate pastor at First Reformed Church in Orange City, Iowa. Yes, Orange City, Iowa, up in the northwest corner, a town of about 5,500 people, and the church I was serving as the associate pastor had around 1,000 people, and there were 11 other churches in town. Uh, three RCA, three RC, CRC, a URC, a PCA, no no Catholic. It was one Baptist. They were sort of small and struggling. Well, you needed yes. somebody to do the lawns, I understand. <laughs> well, yes, the lawns on Sunday were quite manicured but kept off of. No, it was, it was a great town, uh, just a real strong Dutch Reformed presence there, named after William of Orange. The town next door is Morris, Maurice, named after his son. So kind of the buckle of the Dutch Reformed Bible Belt. And you and your lovely wife, Trish, Trish, have four children, Ian, Jacob, Elizabeth, and Paul. Yes. And you have a bunny. Well, the bunny, uh, praise the Lord, is no longer with us. Uh, did not did not pass away, but we gave him away. That was uh, quite a mistake of ours to purchase a bunny. Uh-huh. My wife continues to regret that decision. But in lieu of a bunny, we are having a fifth child in a few weeks. That's great. Congratulations. Easier to take care and of than you're, bunnies. You're uh, you're a significant sports fan. I do like Chicago sports. Bears. Chicago Bears. Chicago Bulls. Bulls. Chicago White Sox. White Sox. Blackhawks. Blackhawks. The Spartans. And the Spartans. Those are the teams. Got them all. Yes. Very good. And have you 
been to many of those games, watched. What do you think about the end of the lockout, Mark? Greg Gilbert has been the senior pastor at Third <laughs> Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, since the summer of 2010. He was born and grew up in Linden, Texas. He attended Yale University and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, you worked closely with Al Moeller. I think you I feel, did. feel some yeah. indebtedness to Al. Yeah, hugely. For four and a half years, I worked with him at Southern Seminary while I was there. Where did you go to church while you were doing your MDiv? Uh, I went to Third Avenue Baptist Church, where I'm now the senior pastor. I was there for six years as a member, deacon, elder. And did that experience shape any of your thinking on what the mission of the church is? Yeah, sure. I think it shaped my I think it shaped my understanding of just pastoral leadership more, probably. But uh, uh, the church was was uh, very passionate about evangelism and very passionate about missions. Though so I think we're just getting our feet under us on on missions internationally. But Prior to serving at Third Avenue, Greg was assistant pastor here in D.C. at Capitol yeah. Baptist Church. Under one Mark Dever. Yeah. He's married to Mariah, whom he met here, and they have three children, Justin, Jack, and Juliet. We do. Is Justin playing football this summer? No, he's not playing football. So, uh, soccer. So. And we don't have a bunny. Yeah. So we're thinking about a dog. Dogs eat bunnies. So. Well, <laughs> brothers, it is good to have you. Greg, it's great to have you back. What, what did you feel you learned by being an elder here? Oh, man. Well, I'd been an elder before at, at Third Avenue, so it was, uh, you know, that's a little skiff out there in Louisville. So moving on to the battleship here in, in Washington, uh, it, you, you just see a lot more problems come up. So dealing with the pastoral intricacies of, of people's lives, you see a lot more things. Uh, it's a bigger organization, so, so there are leadership lessons to be learned there. The Lord yeah. gave you a very good ministry here, brother. I'm oh, still thank you. profiting from it. Good. I, I'm about to preach, Lord willing, from Isaiah this fall, and you preached from mm-hmm. Isaiah about three years ago. I did. I know in some of your gospel work, uh, Isaiah is pretty important. Do you remember working through Isaiah for those sermons? Yeah, absolutely. I still I still refer back in my own thinking uh, as I'm looking through the New Testament and even the Old to, to what I learned from, from Isaiah. Uh, it, it's an amazing book, and, and I, think people, uh, I think people underestimate how much of a structure the thing actually has. It is messianic to its core, mm. uh, and that's what Isaiah is driving at at every page. And when you see the structure, it's just mind-blowing. And Beautiful. have you preached on Isaiah yet at 3rd Avenue? No, I'm, I'm saving that one. When are you, you going to do that? I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, not this year. I've got that planned out. What are you preaching on this year? Uh, Matthew and then Ezekiel will end out the year. Okay. And how are things at 3rd Avenue going? Great. Great. Things are, things are really well. The church is doing well. Now, it's in old Louisville? It's in old Louisville. It's sort of surrounded by the University of Louisville, a few blocks south of downtown. So, kind of like Kevin's situation, you're right by a university campus. Yeah, yeah. Ours is a different kind of campus. It's it's more a, more a commuter school. Though they're trying to change that. Though it's huge. It's you know twenty thousand students, uh, but but different, I think. Kevin, you were going to say something. Uh, I was just going to say, it's great serving with students and across the street. Michigan State is forty six thousand students, so it's a it's a big honking place. Yeah. Uh, I think there are more people and, uh, across the street in the dorms there than in the town in Iowa that I came from. <laughs> Greg, you also write. I do. What have Occasionally. you written? Occasionally. What have you written? Uh, well, the only uh, let's see, the only the only full book that's already been published was What Is the Gospel? Uh, that's a little book that Crossway did last year, uh, about 120 pages, just a straight up, as clear as I could get it, explanation of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Uh, and, uh, a friend of mine stopped by here about an hour ago or 30 minutes ago to pick up a copy to take to a non-Christian friend of his today. Good. I hear stories about that all the time. I've heard of, uh, I've heard of that book in the hands of, uh, of prostitutes in big cities. I heard of it making the rounds of one state. I forget which state it was, but made the rounds of death row 
in a in a certain state. So I hear stories all the time. It's a great book. What are you working on now? Working on now. Uh, well, Kevin and I've just finished up the mission book, and uh, actually, you you and I have a book that's uh, that's due in a few weeks to the publisher uh, on preaching. So, hey, man, I've sent you my stuff. It's I know you have. It's all on me now. Hey, I follow you on Twitter, but you don't tweet. I don't. I never tweet. I never tweet. Why don't you write more on the Nine Marks blog? Well, now that's another question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jonathan, you want to say anything? You got him right here, right now. Uh, I think. I think. Untapped potential and poor stewardship really would be <laughs> the answer right, to that right. question. Back to the topic. What, what kind of mercy ministries does Third Avenue have? One of my elders is the uh, uh, director of operations at a mission downtown uh, called the Jefferson Street Baptist Mission. Uh, so our uh, uh, it, it deals with men who are uh, men specifically, I, I think, uh, who are uh, involved in everything from from drug use to just to just sort of economically homeless. So our people volunteer at that quite a bit. Um, we're also uh, we also have a group of members who are involved in just, a uh, just just to follow up on that. Uh-huh. I understand that's what one guy in your church does, but you say your members volunteer in that. Does the church feel any responsibility for that? Do you encourage them? Do you pray for that? I mean, we there... do encourage them. We don't we don't budget for Jeff Street in our in our budget, but but we'll use our public services to call for volunteers. You for would have events. no conscientious reason. That you shouldn't budget for that as a church. No, though. Uh, though in in the book, we would we would think about it through a certain framework before we got there. There would be several steps that we'd go through before we got to that point. Kevin, how's University Reform going? It's going well. Yeah, it's a great place to serve, and happy to be there. I've been on sabbatical for this summer, just having finished seven years. So it's been a, a great time to do some writing and reading. Hmm. Relaxing. Explain how important Michigan State is to your congregation's mission. I mean, I know you just said it's right across the street from the building, but explain a little bit more of the campus's role in your church. Yeah, I mean, the the church was founded in 1966. Uh, it was uh, really a mission venture from the Reformed Church in America. A lot of uh, churches in the Grand Rapids area gave money and had a vision. And initially, it was probably somewhat... Provincial, you know, this is going to be a church for RCA people, students to go to. But um, the founding pastor, who's there for 36 years, is just a real man of God and had a faithful evangelical ministry. And so the the DNA of the church has always been, you know, if you, if you ask people what, what's the, our number one kind of ministry focus, it's to the campus. So we have two full-time paid staff and then several uh, staff who raise their own support that do campus ministry. I would say about a fourth of our congregation are students or graduate students, and then there's a number of other people that are professors or faculty or staff or work at. 45,000 students? 45,000 students. I mean, are there other strong evangelical churches around doing this? Uh, You know, there certainly are some other good evangelical churches, uh, you know, a few miles away, but there are, I mean... You're the only one right on the doorstep. Yeah, there are other... There's a CRC church right next to us that does some ministry, although that's been waning lately. Uh, on the other side of campus, there's a row of churches, and they're not very good, honestly. There's a, a mosque and then some liberal churches. I wouldn't go to any three of them. And Do they all have similar views of Jesus? Uh, probably. The mosque might have a higher view of him as a prophet? It perhaps would. Serious question on pastoring students. Is Facebook an important pastoral tool these days? Uh, yes. However, I should add, I'm not on Facebook. 
just to simplify my life. I do enough blogging that I don't want to be on Facebook. But yeah, certainly our, our campus ministry, I mean, even it's strange we find email. Email is antiquated with college students. They don't respond to email. You have to do Facebook. So yeah, lots of communication happens mm. on Facebook. Do you tweet? I do not tweet. And I don't, I don't know that students, I don't know that they... They're doing Twitter or Rick, following. Do you, do you a lot use of Facebook with students, Pastor? Oh, we use it a lot. Yeah, we have a Facebook page, and that's that's how most of our communication gets done. Yeah. Wow. So, Kevin, what, what kind of mercy ministries does University Reformed have? Yeah, we have several different kind, and, and I should add that, you know, we're still. I mean, some of what I'm writing about are things that we're wrestling with in our church, with our missions committee and our elder board, and how to how to work through some of these issues. But uh, in addition to supporting a number of missionaries whose work would be with agriculture or medicine, and then also working with, with local churches. So there's that sort of mercy ministry. And then more locally in our congregation, uh, we have a, it's called His Hands, which is sort of the umbrella for some mercy ministry things that happen in in our church. Um, is that in cooperation with other RCA churches in the area, or is it just you guys? This is this is just us. So like one of the ministries that we started a couple of years ago is to sort of adopt a uh, single mom, and there's a program. We, we partner with, other, with another Christian agency in town, and it's to sort of help her holistically, to use a buzzword, you know, with budgeting, and the goal is to get her into her own place and help her find a job. And when they first, uh, some people in our church had the idea for this ministry, you know, we said, we really like that, Let's, but let's think through it. What's the desired goal? If, if we say everything worked just as we wanted at the end of this ministry, um, one of the desired goals would be this woman is walking with the Lord. Now, we don't necessarily say she has to be going to our church. She may find that there's another evangelical church that fits her better. So we wanted to sort of ramp up what this other agency was doing, Christian agency, and make sure that there was a more explicit discipleship, spiritual component mm-hmm. to it. You also write, uh, you've written Freedom and Boundaries, a pastoral primer on the role of women in the church, why we're not emergent, by two guys who should be, just do something, a liberating approach to finding God's will, why we love the church, and praise of institutions and organized religion, which, by the way, is a superb book. I'm sorry that one kind of gets lost sometimes in the shuffle. I wish more people would read that one. No. Kevin DeYoung, Why We Love the Church. That is a wonderful book. And then the one on the Heidelberg Catechism, the good news we almost forgot. Yes. Discovering the gospel in the 16th century catechism. And then you guys were together and don't call it don't a call comeback. It a comeback. Yep. Yeah, Kevin edited it. I did a chapter along with a lot of, a lot of other guys. Was on... It was on penal substitution. Yeah. And then you wrote one of the Gospel Coalition series of booklets on the Holy Spirit. Yep, on the Holy Spirit. Right. What are you working on now? Uh, I just had a little pamphlet come out with Crossway uh, about the ESV. And then uh, this mission book, which Greg mentioned. And then I am also, this summer on my sabbatical, I'm working on a book that will come out about a year from now, Lord willing, uh, tentatively titled The Whole in Our Holiness. It's about sanctification. What's mm. what's the role of effort and faith and the gospel? And is it enough to simply focus on the gospel and all the good works will flow from that? So it's been, it's been edifying and challenging and I've had fun working on it this summer. And you're a big presence on the Internet uh, through your blog, De Young, De Restless, and Deformed. Reformed, yes. Yes, uh, I blog more than people <laughs> should blog, but I... What's the there. What's the blog called? De Young, Restless, and Reformed. Right. Yes, on the Gospel Coalition. So, yeah, I uh, write on there usually six days a week, and it, usually two or three of those are substantive 
kind of posts. So I've been doing it for, I don't know how long, two and a half, three years. Are you proud of being so polemical on your blog? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think of myself as being so polemical, and I'm not... You're kidding. Proud. You think you would think I'm thing outside. Okay, polemical. you would think I'm polemical. Greg, is he polemical? He's, on his blog? he's polemical when he needs to be. He's yeah. polemical with you know Rob Bell's book Love Wins, but he's not polemical with other things. So you did get quite a bit of publicity out of the, the Bell book. I did, yes. Yeah. So uh, I uh, you had seven areas of critique of the book. No, like eleven, right? I don't remember. I think a that, lot. I think it, it ended up like being 11. seven. Yes. Why is it important for pastors to teach on the wrath of God? Oh, I mean, so much of the biblical storyline doesn't make sense without the wrath of God. In fact, I have a section in the emergent book on why we need the wrath of God. I mean, not only do we need it because you know, divine mercy doesn't shine as brightly unless it's against the backdrop of divine wrath, but we can't make sense of the cross uh, and also, I think people overlook the ways in which divine wrath is really a motivation, often in the New Testament, for our ethics, either to avoid the wrath of God, we get that, but also you think of Romans 12, where Paul can say, forgive one another, leave room for God's wrath. Mm-hmm. So we don't often think, one of the reasons you can forego the justice you deserve in your life is because God's justice will be meted out, and every sin against you or your people is paid for on the cross or will be paid for in hell. Well, that that's freeing. And if you don't have that sort of God, you lose one of the main motivations to live this kind of gracious life. Well, and I mean, that would be the... I, I haven't read Rob Bell's book. I've skimmed through it, and I've certainly read your reviews and other reviews. And it seems like if pastors start to pull back from preaching God's wrath, well, it may be because they misunderstand. They don't believe in God's wrath. But even right. if you... If you're listening to this and you believe in God's wrath, but you just you feel it's not nice or it's just somehow rude or inappropriate to preach it, you're leaving your people unprepared for the Lord's return. Yeah, you know, well, you, leave, you, you also leave them sort of unprepared for the gospel itself. You you, yeah. you lose one of the driving uh, uh, engines of of the good news of the gospel because you know I, I understand the impulse that that Rob's book and a lot of other people have to to say that the gospel is a response to human brokenness. But I think part of what happens with sin is that sin deceives us into thinking we're not broken. Mm. Um, a, lot, I, I, a lot of people are like that. I'm not broken. Why do I? What, what are you talking about? I'm broken. I'm not. I'm strong. I'm, I'm together. And the wrath of God comes in and like a wedge drives mm. in to that, that deceit and prepares you to hear the good news of the gospel. Mm. Speaking of what is the gospel, you got Don Carson right the forward to that. I did, like a shield. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the book's been out for a while now. I mean, over a year. Yeah, more than a year, have, year and a half. Have, almost. have you gotten much critical feedback on it? Not much. I mean, from from a few quarters that you know you would expect. You know, for example, there's a there's a chapter on the kingdom, and there are certain dispensationalist friends of mine that didn't like that mm-hmm. conception of the kingdom. They're still dispensationalists. <laughs> oh, thank you, Kevin. Oh, <laughs> uh, dispensationalist brothers and sisters, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Remember, he's reformed. He thinks yeah. he was baptized at two weeks or something. <laughs> but, uh, you know, even those friends have liked the part and have, have used it with non-Christian friends in their churches. So, yeah, they've liked other parts. Do you say anything different in what is the gospel than the Beatty Anyuile or Mike Horton or David Platt or Russ Moore or John Piper or Paul Washer would say? Well, I'm not super familiar with all those guys. I've heard all their names. I, I, mm, I don't, th- I don't think so. I mean, I've heard from a good number of those guys anyway, and they like the book and even even use it. So, uh, you know, I think I'm, I think with that book, I'm aiming for the kind of center of 
center of evangelicalism. <clears throat> Apparently, um, Scott so. McKnight is joining this conversation. Yeah, I saw that. Did you see this? I saw that. The blog that I think we looked at said Scott McKnight is concerned that we've confused the gospel with plan of salvation. He's got to have your book in mind. Maybe. He uses the phrase, though. It's a question. Rather than you know. being true evangelicals, a word rooted in the Greek euangelion, meaning good news or gospel, contemporary Western Christians might be better identified, he says, as soterians, from the Greek word soter, savior, because we've built our whole church culture around one thing, salvation, who is saved and who is damned. While not disagreeing with the theology espoused by those on the neo-reformed side. Don't you just love that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. While not disagreeing a little with stiff the arm. theology espoused by those Alter on the neo-reformed side. And affirming, I was going to say that, and affirming the, the, <laughs> Romans, the Romans Road presentation of salvation. McKnight says their error, yours, I don't know, is calling this the gospel. Equating the plan of salvation with gospel means Jesus could not have preached the gospel. Jesus could not have preached the gospel. Only the apostles like Paul who preached after Jesus' death and resurrection could possibly present this message. McKnight believes this is an error rooted in a false understanding of what the gospel is. Yeah, I disagree with that entirely. I, I think uh, I think Jesus did did preach. Well, I mean, I have to back up, right? I mean, I have to. You got to start with saying that that the uh, the good news of salvation uh, through Jesus is in fact the gospel. The Bible talks about it in those terms all the time. Uh, the apostles uh, uh, label that message with the word euangelion. So so the Bible talks like that, and I just don't think you can you can cut that out and and not talk about it that way. And then I think Jesus did, in fact, in, in, in many different places throughout the Gospels, uh, talk about that plan of salvation. His message is, the kingdom of God is at hand, and now, repent and believe. Here's the way you get into it. And then throughout his ministry, he's, he's filling that up with content about exactly what you're to repent Including of and what you're to believe in. the cross. Absolutely. I've, I've come to, to the, the, the shepherds come to lay down his life for the sheep. Yeah. 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 Um, I know a book that... At least you like Kevin, I can't remember if you talked about this one or not, but Peter O'Brien's Consumed by Passion, Paul, and the Dynamic of the Gospel. Uh, he, or is this not the one? Mm-mm. There was one Peter O'Brien book that you... Oh, it was his... It was uh, Paul and the Mission. Yeah, That's Paul and the yeah, Mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, something that O'Brien does is he talks specifically about how the gospel that Paul preaches is rooted in just what you're saying and what Jesus taught and how he goes back even behind with the words Jesus uses and goes to Isaiah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Je- Jesus does that. I, I, one of the things I find ironic all the time is when people say, uh, well, I want to preach the gospel that the disciples preached when Jesus sent them out as, as the 70. No. You know, I want to go back to the source and do that. But the whole point of that in the narrative is that they don't understand it yet. You know, and it takes the resurrection for them to sort of lock it down and, and understand exactly what's going on. So it's just highly ironic that people would say, I want to preach just like the disciples when they were ignorant. Well, and you have to read the Gospels backward through the cross, obviously, and, and realize that all the Gospels are, are put together in a certain way. I mean, most obviously is, is John and John twenty thirty one that the whole aim of his Gospel is that people would believe in Christ and by believing have life in his name. I've been preaching through Mark for almost three years, and I, I just get your sermons after you preach them. I'm just a couple months behind, so it's been very helpful, Mark. Uh, but, you know, it's just amazing how Mark has put the Gospel together and how he shows Jesus' ministry progressing that it's it's very plain that these certain acts in the book and you know the watershed moment with peter's confession but it's all pointing to the miracles the healings 
they're all pointing to the identity of Jesus and do you really understand who he is? I mean, very much what evangelicals would say is the gospel. So to try to say there's some other kind of better kingdom gospel, I don't think does justice to the way the gospel writers understood their own project. That's right. I've been preaching through Matthew, and even in the first chapters of Matthew, you, you see that with with the, the way Matthew, him Jesus, he will save uh, his people from their sins. Yeah, and the way the way Matthew links uh, links up the the birth narrative of Jesus and the escape to Egypt with with the Exodus. You know, he's saying he, here's a here's a new Exodus that's yeah. going to be better than what you what you yeah. even knew. Yeah. Uh, even the Sermon on the Mount is structured, I think, not primarily in terms of ethics, but in terms of Jesus's authority to lay down those ethics. So it's about his identity. That's the new Moses uh, as much as anything. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, this this uh, Consumed by Passion book by Peter Brown, I just have an Australian copy. It's the same book, just different title. Um, okay, okay. Uh, he has a, a central chapter on the logic of Paul's gospel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then that he says that the gospel serves as the, br- the bridge between Paul's and other Christians' activity. It's key to understanding the relationship between the apostles' teaching and his mission and that of missions in general. And he goes on on the next page. Page 77 to write, we who have truly experienced the saving power of the gospel in our own lives and have the assurance of deliverance from the wrath to come on the final day cannot be anything other than debtors to those for whom Christ died, just as Paul was a debtor to them. If we know the desperate plight of men and women under divine judgment, we ourselves had once been in this predicament, and that the gospel is the only hope for deliverance from the wrath to come, then we should be wholly involved in bringing it into the lives of others. Mm. So... uh, what P- about P- Peter's such a great scholar. We should just—I mean, I, I've benefited so much from his his work, even in my own preaching. And yeah. he's oh, one of my yeah. favorite commentators. Anytime oh, you get a commentary by Peter O'Brien, it's, oh, it's superb. Yeah, it's just precise and and theologically sound. Excellent. And that little book. What, what is the English title? It's Paul and the I can't remember. Paul the American, the American title. Yeah, it's in a, it's in a footnote the American, there. Yeah. you don't want to find it. No, yeah. but it's a it is a great book for <clears throat> pastors to have on their shelf. It's not that long. Uh, he also did one that you guys cite in your book with the. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger, Salvation to the Ends of the Earth. Yes, very yeah, good. Yeah, very good book. Um, a Biblical Theology of Missions. Use, is this useful for pastors? Very much. Old Testament, Genesis to Revelation, look at, at a biblical theology of mission. Like Salvation to the Ends of the Earth. Yep, it, and it's very helpful. They're really good summaries. I mean, it's the sort of book that you can have on your shelf. You don't want to read the whole thing. You can look at the summary of, of this book or this genre or genre. Genre. <laughs> genre. Yeah, genre. Genre. <laughs> Um, and now, anyway, you all have conspired together on this book, What is the Mission of the Church? We have. True enough. How would you compare it to Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now? <laughs> it's uh, about the same length. Yeah. It will sell roughly the same, I imagine. <laughs> yes. Uh, Neither I, of us has our picture on the cover. No, it doesn't. But I, I think they would probably have yours, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us the story of the book. How did it come about? Oh man, well we have a uh, we have a group of friends. Uh, uh, it was me, me, Kevin, Josh Harris, Tully and Chavijan, uh down at Coral Ridge, Colin uh, Hanson, Justin, Hans Justin Taylor. Taylor. Yeah. So we try to get together about twice a year, either at conferences that we all happen to be at, or just a, a special trip. And we were talking about these issues, and I think Kevin and I were kind of firing on the same cylinders as we were talking about Tag-teaming it. Tag teaming a little bit. Yeah, and Taylor jumped in and said, "You guys should write a book." And so we were kind of. I'll buy you Little Caesars on yeah, Crossway's <laughs> tab if you write a book for I'll us. I'll buy you a hot and ready if you buy, if you write us a book. Oh, that was, yeah. So yeah, we it, it grew out of those conversations. I had been reading uh, a lot of stuff around the area of social justice, 
And so we were talking about that. And, you know, really, I mean, Greg, uh, not only are we on the same page on this, but to find someone uh, like-minded, but that you feel like, and as you said last night, Mark, he can do a lot of heavy lifting in this book. So it was the right time for a book like this, and Greg was definitely the right person to do it with. And it's just it's been a conversation, uh, especially in our circles for the past few years with missional and other sort of buzzwords. What, what does it really mean? What are we supposed to be doing as the church? And so it seemed important. So, Greg, what does this new book have to do with your What is the Gospel book? Well, I think it follows on right after it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it I mean, seems like it. Yeah, it's, it's just a it's just a natural next step. If, if the good news of the gospel is is you know that, that Jesus saves us through His death and resurrection from our sin, then yeah, okay, to sort of right on to sort of transition our, our conversation over more to the subject of the book. Let's grab our Bibles and go to Acts. Greg, you talk actually in what is the gospel and in your new one, what is the mission of the church. You talk about uh, a more narrow use of the word gospel and a wider use. Right. So if we go to Acts 10 um, with, uh, with the sermon there, um, when Peter is explaining the gospel at Cornelius' house, you, you say from like uh, 36 and following, the good news of peace there in 36 through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all, mm-hmm. that in that sermon... You say that's an example of what you call a more narrow use of the word gospel. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's true. Um, I'll have to read it. I haven't looked at this in a while, but but uh, I, I think if I remember correctly, he <clears throat> uh, went about doing good, put him to death. Command us to preach to the people down in forty. Yeah, yeah. So when it, so as he's preaching this sermon, beginning in cha- in uh, uh, verse thirty six, it all comes down finally in verse forty three. Yeah. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness, forgiveness of, sins. of sins through his name. And, and, then he, and then he stops. The Holy Spirit, in fact, stops him. Mm-hmm. Now, I imagine that Peter could have kept on talking about all the great blessings that Jesus would, would win for those whom he's forgiven. Uh, but that's when the Holy Spirit falls, when he says forgiveness of sins. And don't you think, Greg, you know, the broader view, if, if someone wants to say the good news is that Jesus is going to remake the whole cosmos. I mean, no, no one wants to do, Yeah, that is good news. That That's part of the story of salvation. That's part yeah. of the whole thing. The, the problem, as I see it, comes when people who want that big story, I think Matt Chandler is going to call it the gospel, gospel, in, the air. gospel in the air and gospel on the ground, yeah. the FedEx, UPS sort of gospel. And the, the problem is then if people who want you know, the the whole creation, fall, redemption, consummation story, who then say, you know, when you just tell people believe in Jesus to be forgiven from your sins, that that's not the gospel. You're not really giving people the gospel. When, is our gospel too small? Yeah, is yeah, our gospel those, too small? When th- that passage in Acts, yeah, 1 Corinthians 15, right. obviously, I mean, clearly says gospel that is, right. that you've given them the gospel. Are there other things you can say about the good news and what Jesus does for us? Absolutely, and you should say more than that. But if that's yeah. what you say, you've told the gospel. Yeah. There are lots of places in the New Testament, I think, where the word gospel is used, and and where just Jesus and the apostles preach about this this whole complex of promises. Well, just okay, Jesus three made. chapters later in Acts, when you use an example in thirteen, you, when Paul's preaching, that's right. uh, verse thirty-two, we tell you the good news, what God our what God promised our fathers, He has fulfilled for us, their yeah. ch- children, that's by right. raising up Jesus. Yeah, and I, I think that 
what God promised to the fathers is huge. It's, so it's not it's just forgiveness world, of sins. I think I don't think so. As I read Isaiah, among others, it's it's world encompassing. It's it's I will make a new heavens and a new earth. It's everything that God promised is being fulfilled to us uh, by raising Jesus. He's the first fruits of the resurrection that's coming, and all of that is uh, is a part of the great complex of promises God has made to us. Is the subtitle of the book a pretty good summary of what readers can expect, Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission? Yeah, I think so. We, I mean, we, we try to be smart with those subtitles and put some, uh, some buzzwords out there that are going to be interesting to people. But, yeah, there's a... Sense. Yeah. Oh, it's making. making. Thomas uh, Paine loved it. The, common sense. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, there are two chapters on social justice. There's a chapter on shalom, and certainly the Great Commission is one of the organizing yeah, principles. Others. It's a thorny topic. It, it's a yeah. very thorny topic. You, you all deliberately picked a thorny topic. Yeah, we did. Right. Kevin, and why we're not emergent, you quote your friend Chuck saying, in the music scene, it's really cool to search for God. It's not very cool to find him. Is it cool to advocate social justice, but not very cool to define it? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's one way to put it. I mean, it's certainly, I mean, you put those words together, social justice, who's... Who's against it? But it becomes, uh, you know, like other terms, a kind of junk drawer and all sorts of stuff gets put into it. And what what does it mean? What is social justice? For one person, it means, well, you shouldn't bribe judges. And for someone else, it means a certain kind of toilet paper you have to use. And everything gets put into this big category. So we really go to great pains to look at a lot of typical social justice passages and try to understand what is the Word of God saying and maybe not saying. And it's not as if the confusion goes away in other fields either. I mean, there's philosophical confusion, political yes, confusion, right. and, and biblical confusion. But so. for the average pastor, don't they just mean how much of my church's effort should be helping the poor? By the word social justice? Yeah. yeah I imagine a lot of them do that, although I can just speak out of my context, which is... You know, more mainline in some instances than evangelical, but there would be a lot of churches in the RCA that social justice would automatically mean you have a certain stance with Israel and Palestine, <clears throat> that you have a certain stance about recycling and the environment and greenhouse gases, all of that. And in fact, in one of our kind of RCA documents, they define justice as not only uh, you know right application of the law, but also equal distribution of resources. So, I mean, that's what you get. Justice is not just are you being treated in a fair and equitable way with mm-hmm. fair and equitable laws, mm-hmm. but is there this just redistribution? I think a lot of people sort of tacitly put that in as so part of their even, understanding. So it even moves into economic systems. Yeah. How, how just are they? It's been said that it's the essence of wisdom to know which dog to throw the brick at. Uh, are you are you throwing bricks at is any that, dogs in this book? Is that your line? Who who, who said that? Are you throwing bricks at any? <laughs> I said it to you, Greg. Once, no. a long time ago. I remember that. I remember that. Uh, are you throwing bricks at any dogs in this book? No, we're making theological we're arguments with some some <laughs> friends of ours who I think it's disagree with us. Friend may have been. <laughs> I don't know any dogs. <laughs> We're, we're certainly making some, some pointed theological arguments uh, against some things that have been said. I'm not going to say anybody's a dog, Mark. Yeah, no. The, the dogs world? are outside right, of right, the right, gates all right, all right, all right. Revelation 21. Thinking about your book, you, you set it up in three parts. Understanding our mission first. Understanding our categories, which is the longest part of the book. And then understanding what we do and why we do it. Can you explain the flow and the significance of, of why you've set it up that way? 
you guys will look at them to recall. Yeah, understanding our mission, we just felt like from the get-go, one mission is an extra-biblical word. That doesn't mean it's bad. We use extra-biblical words all the time. But we need to define what is it that mission is. Maybe we'll get into that. So the, the first couple of chapters is talking about what in the world does Jesus send us into the world to do. Mission has the sending component. So we're not talking about every possible good thing we might do commanded by Christ, but a mission. And that's kind of the chapter where we uh, yeah. talk most specifically and exegetically about uh, uh, the great commissions as they're given in the Gospels and Acts. And then we also look at a few passages that are sometimes put forward as alternative great commissions for the church mm-hmm. and just consider them, you know, is that really right? Go ahead. So, yeah, just real quickly. Ca- I do want to go back to yeah. mission particularly. I mean, the categories, I mean, one of our... our Central arguments in the book is, uh, I think there's a lot of common ground among evangelicals on this, but I think we're not using some of the right categories. So instead of talking about good deeds, we talk about social justice or we lump in kingdom. You know, that's kingdom building or kingdom work or bringing shalom. So we want to go through some of those hot button issues. It's a huge topic, right? If you you wind up in a discussion about social justice or the mission of the church – it, it covers the waterfront. You're going to wind up talking about gospel, and then you're going to wind up talking about eschatology, and then you're going to wind up talking about ecclesiology, and it, it's it's everywhere. So, so part of what we're trying to do in the book is just identify seven or eight of those beachfronts mm-hmm. and and talk about them very carefully, biblically and theologically. That's what but, that second. But these are not dogs you're throwing bricks at. No, these are topics. Okay, so let's take mission. That's where you guys begin. Yeah. Why is the word mission so important? Because, Greg, I remember earlier conversations with you when when you were just trying to consider how much effort do we put into an extra-biblical word. Right, right. Well, I'm not sure it's as I'm, – I'm not sure – I think we've, we've decided it's not quite as unbiblical as we think. It's a, it's the it's – it's, it's a Latin send. root of yeah, sending, right. of apostolos, or yeah. whichever, whatever yeah. the, the verb of that is. Um, so I don't think it's quite as unbiblical as we think. It's never used in the New Testament as a noun. Uh, and uh, and yet it is used as a verb, and also it's just one of those kind of golden words that you're just not going to be able to not reckon with. You have to deal with it. So so is mission the same as task? Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't say so. We don't specifically address that, but I think what we say with that root of of sending, yeah. missio, mission is what we are sent into the world. To accomplish now, is that, is, mission is mission is more organizing for your, for an entire life or army or whatever you're talking about. It's more organizing than a task. So the mission of an army may is the thing that organizes everything they do, and then there are various tasks that support and drive that mission. Kevin, you said what we're sent into the world to do is that into the world an important part of that? Yeah, I mean, as we understand what mission, I mean, what. There's all sorts of things that... How would you, you know, distinguish mission and purpose? Of the church? Yeah. Or, or would you? Yeah, I, I mean, I would. Because if you talk about purpose, you can immediately talk, well, the purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or you can say the, the purpose is to love God and love our neighbor. You can go to any number of formulations that sort of get at the big picture of what the church is supposed to be about. But I, I think a little more narrowly when you're talking about mission... What what is God deploying us? What are our marching orders in the world? Does He send us into the world to go serve people? That's what you do. 
So you try to regulate your own language not to use mission and purpose interchangeably in respect to the church. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're Greg. Do you do that? I, I would. I think mission is. Pr- I, I think the way I would talk about this is mission is prior to purpose. Uh, you 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 do the mission in order that the purpose of 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 God's uh, glory being being recognized and and and, and him being mission is chronologically is prior, but purpose is more fundamental. Purpose is more fundamental. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, like I mean, many churches would have their sort of purpose statement. They might call it a mission statement. They might have the five E's: evangelism, edification, or exaltation, and and that's certainly fine. So we're not trying to say you know the church doesn't care about those things in any way. So and a lot of people are going to use purpose and mission interchangeably, but because mission, as Greg said, is is so pervasive, I mean, you got a missions committee, you got a missions week, you got a mission budget, you got missionaries, that it just feels unwise to say, well, that's undefinable, and we're not even going to talk about what mission is. No, we have all these things in the church that are mission. It really behooves us to be more careful with the word. I remember Al Mohler saying to the trustees at Southern Seminary, there will be no missionaries sent out by churches that don't believe the gospel. And I think that idea of missionary so captures the evangelical imagination. Um, and it was Newbegin, really, Leslie Newbegin, in the middle of the 20th century, I think, who really got mainline, and then later by the 70s and 80s through missiology, evangelicals to think of themselves as missionaries. You know, Newbegin was from Britain, went to India, came back to Britain, wrote about his discovery of Western society as needing to be the recipient of missions and then how the church's very nature is a missionary nature. And, uh, and I think that's, that's where a lot of this mission language has come in. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a recasting of ecclesiology as missiology, which is in a lot of ways helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I think so. I mean, it, although it can join up with all kinds of stuff like business practices, having mission statements and vision statements for churches and, um, yeah, I know Matt Chandler said in his new book that's due out in the next spring of 2012, The Explicit Gospel, a good book, has said that the missional mindset is believing and living as if God's reconciling work is true in every space we find ourselves in. Yeah. Living and believing as if God's reconciling work is true in every space we find ourselves in. Well, I think what's helpful in some of that shift, and I'll get to what I think is not helpful, What's helpful is we need to understand missions, we just send money. I mean, it's easy for churches to think that's what we do. We give money, we have a missions committee, we have missionaries, there our work is done. So, And that's the mind shift that's been taking place yes. in the last 30 years. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's been a necessary shift. I, I am jealous to protect the word missionary. I mean, Again, I'm not going to get up in arms if people in my church say so, they're missionaries. So this means you don't like the word missional, the way it's being used? Man, I just don't know what people mean by missional. If people mean well, by... Matt Chandler says the missional mindset is believing and living as if God's reconciling work is true in every space well, we find then, ourselves in. Then I'm thankful for missional. Yeah, I mean, I, usually, if I hear good people like Matt use missional, it usually means, hey, let's get out of our holy huddles. Let's see that... There's ministry to do outside of our own walls, and that's that's good. Do you, but do you want can, university reform to be a missional church? I, I don't use that language. Yeah, and the way he okay. defines it, sure. Do you, but, Greg, sure. do you use that language? I don't use the language. No, I don't. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a well enough defined word, and I think enough people have a hold of it and are trying to pull it in certain directions uh, that it's. 
uh, the ball's still up in the air on, on where the word's going to land. So I'd rather use better defined language. Is that what you're trying to do in this book? Yeah, the sum of them. I mean, we, we're not trying to hit head-on missional just because we don't want to... That's not one of the the dogs that we're throwing a brick at. <laughs> well, Greg's throwing none, Kevin, but anyway. Yes, well, I have I have a whole arsenal. <laughs> I need at least one day a week on my so, blog. So is, is, is Capitol Hill Baptist Church a missional church? Or you just you don't care, you're not going to really use that language? No, I'm just not going to yeah. use the language. Greg, thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think Capitol Hill Baptist Church is, is engaged in mission. Uh, but I don't exactly, I mean, we're talking to several hundred or thousand people here in this in this interview, so I don't know what people think You're about when they think of, of mission. Dozens even. So, dozens even. <laughs> <laughs> okay, l- let's, let's go back to the Bible, and uh, let's go to the wisdom writings. Uh, let's go to Proverbs. Um, Proverbs 14. You, you know where I'm going. Verse 31. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. This is a a verse that gets a lot of use. Um, Thoughts on how we should understand this? Implications for this topic that we're talking about on the mission of the church? It's true. And good. And good. And one of the things we want to be careful in this this book, and we had... uh, you know, a, a brother challenges on it, and I, I think help make the book stronger, is even though we're leaning against, you know, some of the social justice language, it could be very easy in a book like this that people walk away and it, it feel like we're just sort of giving lip service. Yeah, 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 you know, it's good to help the poor. Yeah, 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 do that. We don't want to do that. That's why we ended the book with trying to give full-throated voice to good deeds and why we do them. So so all of that we want to say strongly uh, I think it's a good thing that younger evangelicals in particular are eager to do things for the poor, uh, eager to work against oppression. What I would say about this verse, I, I don't know that there's much to say other than I would want to talk about the word oppress. That's another word. Um, if if you get paid minimum wage, are you being oppressed? If there's workers in another country who don't make anywhere close to what uh, Western workers would make for making T-shirts. Are they are they being oppressed? And I, that gets into a lot of complicated issues. So we need to be careful not to just read in what we view oppression, because typical oppression in the Old Testament is bribery, uh, lying, and deception. Or really, and you see this in James, uh, that the most typical view you know, form of oppression is an employer agrees to some sort of wages for an employee and then fails. To give them. Yeah. So, so when this was written, what did he probably mean by oppress? What, what was going on there? I think he probably meant the things Kevin just yeah. just mentioned. There, yeah. there are certain things if you if you look carefully at the at the famous social quote unquote social justice passages yeah. in the prophets, uh, they are they are aiming at particular practices of the rulers, especially when when they're talking about that. One other thing about what Kevin was talking about, I. Our goal in the book, just no one's, not many people have read it. It's not out yet. Our goal in the book is certainly not to go to these kinds of verses and explain them away and explain how they're really not as important as as people think they are. That that's not what we're doing. What we're doing, I, and I think if Kevin and either of us were preaching this, we'd preach it full throated positively. Well, and you, that's you, what I'm asking. About. I'm, I wasn't suggesting you guys are trying to sort of debunk it yeah, in any way. I'm but, asking positively. Yeah. A local pastor. Well, what's he supposed to read this and think? Yeah, here, here's here's what I would say. So Leviticus nineteen thirteen, 
You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. And you go over to James 5. Uh, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the misery. So these, these are bad, rich people. What, what have they done that's so bad? Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Yeah. So, so fraud, but, deceit. Yeah, but fraud, deceit. But here's a really, a, a really important thing to notice is that it's important when you're preaching that full-throated positive, don't oppress your neighbor. Yeah. You have to click that into the right place in Christian theology. And you can mess things up by, by giving full-throated uh, uh, positive treatment to a verse. You can mess it up just by clicking it in the wrong place. So, for example, I would take a verse like this and click it theologically into the fruit of the Christian life. This is what a Christian is supposed. This is the way a Christian is supposed to love his neighbor. This is the way he's supposed to act because of the Holy Spirit's work in his life, changing him, making him generous, making him forgiving, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's wrong, I think, to take a verse like this and click it into the place of this is what the church is about. This is what we do. This is the mission of the church. Okay, can I try to split the difference of climbing between those? Let's say if, if it's not going to be the church, but because you brought up the individual, can we say this? it's okay to say this is what an individual is about? No, no. I think you have to say a yes in part. But, you ha- but what you have to say about an individual that you don't say about the church is that uh, an individual has lots and lots of obligations that the Lord puts on them and that pull on him or her in, in, in different directions. Uh, we have obligations in family, in work, in church, uh, uh, children, parenting, lots of things that pull on us. And, and we have to figure out a way to, to balance that. So I don't think you can boil the individual Christian down quite as simply as you can uh, the institutional church. I'll just say, here's where we need to be careful, too, with our categories. You know, a preacher listening to this wants his congregation to be more generous. There's all sorts of passages you can talk about generosity. Now, there's a way to preach from that passage in Proverbs 14 that you would make every person in your congregation leave church that Sunday feeling like, I'm guilty of oppression. I oppress people. I, and that's always a temptation in mm-hmm. preaching, to make every person feel guilty for everything that you're preaching against. But I don't think that's faithful. I, I don't think that... Every person in our church is guilty of oppression. I think few of them are in this sort of way. The ones, and, and, and there's why it's so important to get it right. I mean, the Bible says those sort of people, you go to hell. I mean, if we really want to say everyone in our church is oppressing people, then everyone in our church is, is not walking with the Lord in faithfulness and they're not on their way to heaven. Now, if we want to say there's room to grow in our generosity, there's room for our hearts to be broken for the poor, then preach that. But if you talk about oppression, it's this sort of thing in James 5 or Leviticus 19, and it shouldn't be made for all of the weight of that word and exhortation to bear on people who may not be guilty of that thing. Tim Keller argues in Generous Justice that uh, from this verse, that a life poured out in doing justice for the poor is the inevitable sign of any real, true gospel faith. Thoughts? That you just you just quoted the sentence. Is that what you did the there? Exact or, quote. Or are you paraphrasing. No, it? no, that's an exact quote. Yes. Period. Want to nuance? I just want to know what we mean by that. Yes, certainly. Someone who. His life has been transformed by the generosity of God's grace 
will be generous to others. Someone who understands that Christ, who was rich for our sakes, became poor, will love the poor. That verse in Proverbs. So yet the, the sort of person who's transformed by the Spirit will have a heart that cares for So you're saying that it's like, this is an example of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm saying, yeah, I'm saying it's the fruit of the Spirit. But what often happens is, it, if we hear in our own minds, that translates you're a part of this program, or you have to live in this sort of neighborhood, or you have to be doing this sort of thing. All of those may be yeah. the, the, explanations the op- of it. So the, the operative phrase there is doing justice, right? You have to define what you what you mean yeah. by that. I mean, are we, uh, are we right here doing justice? Doing justice to the poor uh, mm-hmm. by refraining from any act of oppression of the poor, or are we not doing justice because we are not actively out, you know, selling these expensive microphones and and raising someone's standard of living? I, I I'm not sure what what Tim is 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 pushing on there, but I think that phrase is very important. Let's turn to the prophets, where mm-hmm. folks often go to see this kind of concern. Let's go to Isaiah one. Um, where, of course, you have the Lord speaking very strongly uh, to Israel. And we could go any number of places here. But if you just look over and say, uh, in the middle of 15, your hands are full of blood, wash and make yourselves clean, take your evil deeds out of my sight, stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. I mean, this would be a very typical kind of passage we would find very, in the prophets. Very. So, okay, how are, how are we to understand that as, as preachers, as pastors, yeah. uh, instructing Christians in our congregation? Well, well, the Lord's poured out his grace on his on His people, right? And they should have responded to that grace with, with fruits of a certain kind, as Jesus would talk about it. Well, just and, like Proverbs 14.31 exhorts. That's right. And and they have, they have apparently utterly failed to respond with the kind of fruit that a heart affected by grace should respond with. And so he, he, he tells them, this is the kind of fruit that should be in your lives as individuals, as a nation, and that fruit is absent. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sinful, and that says something about how much you value uh, or not the grace that I've poured out on you. Kevin, thoughts? I mean, you look in Isaiah, Amos, Micah 6 8, obviously, is the most famous one. I mean, you look at Micah 6 8. You know, he has told you, O oh man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And, and you read through, like Micah 3.11, it, its heads give judgment for a bride, its priests teach for a price, its practice, uh, prophets practice divination for money. Uh, so you look through, and I think you see the sort of things that they weren't doing justice. Mm-hmm. You had priests who were robbing people. You had kings who were favoring and taking bribes to favor the rich over the poor. You had people who were uh, doing this sort of land grabbing and stealing uh, without uh, any sort of recourse for those who were wrong. These are the sort of things that are happening that when it says do justice, I think that's what the prophets mean. A, a question I have about understanding the prophets as a Christian and, and preaching through them is that all of this kind of condemnation of God's people, and, and Greg, you rightly point out, obviously this is to God's people. Um, it, it seems to me that God's people should especially exemplify God's character and reflect it. But that's not uniquely our task. So 
there are very interesting passages in the prophets where, where you, you, you get this. You get this in Amos. You get this in Daniel 4 when God gives Nebuchadnezzar this dream and then Daniel interprets the dream and he says in Daniel 4.27, Therefore, O king, speaking to a pagan king, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. So it's not just something that is there for God's special people, though certainly we should specially exemplify God's character. It's it's there, it seems like, throughout creation. Mm-hmm. It's more a, a creation mandate because we're made in God's image rather than anything that's unique to God's people. Well, and I wonder then what implications that has for us as pastors of local churches for our church's work as opposed to the work that we encourage more largely with well, Muslim friends and atheist friends who are moral. And well, I think that's true, but I would I would say a little more than that because I think once a once a person is is uh, converted and becomes a Christian, there are unique motivations and powerful motivations that come into play uh, that that revolutionize that creation. Well, agree, but none of those Nebuchadnezzar had. No, that's true. And so the Lord is the Lord is right to call him to live up to okay. the to the standard that he as creator God it's has not set unique on all human to God's beings. people, to God's elect. The the, the standard itself? Yeah. No, but but There's once a person, appropriateness. That's right. But once surely. you become a but once you become a Christian, yeah. uh, and you're following Jesus, that's a powerful unique motivation that comes into play. Uh we 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 need to close off this conversation. We've we've got a lot still to talk about. Let's let's have another conversation where we get to the New Testament. All right. Okay. All right. But but one more thing on the Old Testament while we're here. What do we think then? I mean, when you read Tim's Generous Justice, which in in many ways I have some questions about, it, but in many ways, certainly it did me good to read it. Mm-hmm. It reminded mm-hmm. me yeah. of God's heart and so much of what He does in the Old Testament. What should we think about the Old Testament example of God's care for the poor and provision for them in Israel? What? What significance does that have for us as we're trying to think through what is the mission of the church? Well, it shows you it shows you God's character. It shows you that He He cares deeply for those who are afflicted. Uh, you, you see that you see that idea of the humble poor throughout throughout the Old Testament. These are these are not just people who are who are materially poor, merely that. Though, though that's that's an that's a that's a pretty common uh, way that affliction works out. Um, but you see God's care and heart for those who are afflicted and who are crying out to Him for. For help, and, and you should be motivated by that. I think you see also the, the immediate connection in the New Testament is that the church is supposed to care for those uh, in, a, in a special and unique way who are members of its body uh, who, are, who are suffering and afflicted. Yeah, so I think as you, as you try to move from these Old Testament passages to preaching in your congregation, helping your people, you want to keep those things in mind. You want to keep how the New Testament more than anything, understands the Exodus as a picture of our salvation. That's just not some kind of weird evangelical spiritualizing. That's how the New Testament views these Well, Greg things. was mentioning earlier Matthew's Gospel. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, understands it that way. Uh, understanding what the New Testament then means by the poor, it's not simp- It's not uh, exclusive of, a, of an economic component, but it's certainly not only that. There's, there's this humble poor idea. And then... Uh, we need to be more careful in how we look at some of these Old Testament passages. So, for example, people will go to Leviticus 25 in the year of Jubilee, and this is great, or we should retire debts, or look at what the Lord did to give them back their land. But when you get into the, the minutiae of the detail, you realize, oh, that, that didn't help the foreigner at all. They, you know, they didn't get their land back. This was really a specific 
uh, injunction by the Lord to help families maintain their tribal inheritance. Well, it was some more of God's distinction between his yes. people and everybody else. Right. So to, to just go to there and then kind of get what you want and then run back and say, look, that's what we should be doing or that's how we should look at these debts and that's how we should deal with each other. No, there's a lot of other issues going on. Well, it's proof texting when you use it yeah. like that. Um, is this what your book's about, this kind of stuff? Yeah, there's a couple chapters in particular that are about, I would say this is one of our categories. Two social justice chapters are on looking at these particular uh, uh, verses and yeah, I, I, Kevin did a great job doing the exegesis on, on those primarily. Brothers, thank you so much for this conversation. We'll look forward to continuing it next time. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, friends, for listening to this Nine Marks audio message. We encourage you to make copies of this message to give to others, but please... Do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more audio messages and other free resources, we invite you to visit us online at www.ninemarks.org or call us toll-free at 1-888-543-1030. Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nation's through healthy churches.